You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm David Merritt. And I'm Francine Lacroix. And this is In the City, Bloomberg's podcast, connecting you to the stories and the voices at the heart of the City of London. This week, a conversation with Anthony Jenkins, founder and executive chairman of 10X Future Technologies, a key player in London's growing fintech scene. Yes, so Anthony, thank you for joining us on In the City. I, I think we'd just love to start with you know, the sort of genesis story, really, of 10X. You, know, you were running one of the biggest companies in Britain and the most famous banks. And you've taken this leap into this new industry of fintech. Tell us how it all started. Well, in many ways, it's very different to what I did before. And in many ways, it's a lot of the same themes. I mean, I I go back to the early 90s in my sort of fascination with technology and financial services. I was running the corporate cash management business of City in the States at the time. And uh, I remember we came up with this uh, incredibly sophisticated uh, accounts uh, receivable processing project we wanted to launch. And in order to launch that, we needed to uh, move a lot of data around. So we had to go and get a T1 line. And the T1 line was so expensive, it almost broke the business case. But we just figured out how we could make it work. And then we realized we needed two T1 lines because we needed resilience. And now you can rent a T1 line for like a thousand bucks a month. So, you know, the the whole kind of notion of how technology and financial services intersect. I was in the US, joined the first dot-com boom. You know, I came back to the UK in 2006. And really, when I was running Barclays, like all banks, we had a lot of things to fix after the financial crisis. When I thought about the go-forward model of the bank, it became clear to me that, that like almost all banks, we had a lot of semi-automated technology in the company. I mean, at the time, we had 130,000 people, of which about 70,000 had operations and technology in their job title. And when I looked at what they were doing, they were sort of taking data out of one system doing something to it and put it into another one, not very efficient. So I just thought there was a huge opportunity to massively automate the bank and that there must be some technology out there that would help me do it. But frankly, I couldn't find any. So when I left, I decided to build the technology I always wish I'd had when I was at Barclays. Anthony, I find it, and maybe it's because I work at Bloomberg, but you look at these shiny big banks and you would assume that actually technology is something that they've been thinking about for years of processes and how the pipelines work. Is it pretty incredible that some of these big banks are still run like dinosaurs in terms of systems that are not compatible with one another? Yeah, in many ways, you know, technology is always seen as the sort of blue collar end of banking. Um, And certainly 
from, say, the late 80s to the financial crisis, banks grew very quickly and they never really thought about the technology they were putting in place. It's also one of the things I subsequently discovered that um, there's something called Conway's law that says that technology architectures tend to follow organizational structures, um, which is not the most efficient way to build technology at all. And when you combine that with the fact that there's almost every generation of technology inside these banks because they they invested in mainframes when they were popular and then mid-range servers and then server farms and all of those technologies sit inside the bank and it, it becomes very complex to kind of reform and overhaul that and that again was one of the problems that we were dealing with at Barclays and that's why I set up 10x because I've provided a much easier path for banks to get off that technology. So do you, I, I'm fascinated by that phrase the blue collar part of the bank do you think that attitude still exists in the big financial institutions. I mean, we've heard Goldman Sachs in the past have said we're actually a technology company rather than, I mean, do you think that's a sort of hollow claim for some of these bigger institutions? Is that like goldmansachs.com? Right. <laughs> I think, look, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of technology in banks, but I don't think banks are technology companies. I mean, Telex is a technology company. We build technology. Um, what banks are are data companies. And there's a very important distinction there because banks have tons and tons of data inside their organizations, but it's very hard to get at and do something useful with. So technology should be the way that you handle data more effectively. Why does that matter? Because it means that if, if you're a customer, a retail customer, say, and you've got three different products with a bank, you appear as if you're three different customers inside that bank. And so banks have to extract the data from the underlying systems, clean it up, put it in a data lake before they could do something useful with it. And that is very inefficient. It's inefficient for the customer. It's very inefficient for the bank. But isn't this a backbone of what a bank should be doing? Of course. But so why, why are they not? Is it, are they now clocking to the fact that this cannot be treated as a commodity? So even outsourcing it to 10x is something that could bite them further down the line? Well, I think there's a distinction between what you outsource because in the history of the industry, people have always outsourced things where there's benefit in effectively spreading the cost against many different banks, right? So you look at Swift, for example, as a payment infrastructure, Visa and MasterCard in the early days. These were basically industry utilities. And so um, it's it's not commercially illogical to do that because it's what you it's how you use the platform and what you build on top of it that really makes a difference. But going on the journey, I mean, most banks in Europe still have very high cost income ratios, and that's because of a lot of these topics, right? So I believe using technology like ours, you can drive that cost income ratio down into the low 30s, and that's going to be a massive boost to the bank's earnings. And they can share some of that back with the customer as well. What is your overall kind of health check on the fintech scene? You know, here in the city of London, you know, the data shows that fintech investment is strong in Britain versus other financial capitals around the world. Is London really capitalizing on that and becoming a real hub for fintech? Yeah, I mean, I think we, uh, one thing we do ourselves down here, um, you know, in that typically English way, right? We look at other parts of the world and, oh, you know, Silicon Valley or, you know, Tel Aviv or, you know, some other place. And we think they're so much better than us. And actually, they're not. I mean, we've got great universities here. Um, we've got great talent here. London is a major financial services center and that's allowed the fintech industry i think to develop well here and i think it will continue to develop well but fintech is not one thing um you've got you know retail facing applications like neo banks or you know payment systems like a wise or revolut then you've got sort of 
uh, narrow focused applications on things like you know onboarding customer verification that sort of thing you've got platforms like ours you've got lots of other activity and things like you know the now not very popular crypto industry but all of those activities are going on in this in this place in in the uk and in london and in other parts of the uk and i think it's great okay, so you leave barclays and you put one million pounds of your own money have you had to that was your wife <laughs> fully supportive or she was like wait hold on <laughs> go get a you know another proper job <laughs> <laughs> no she was very supportive and um you know i really determined after that 30 odd years in the industry working essentially for two banks i started at barclays went to city for 17 years went back to barclays for a decade that i was going to have a second career uh, i was in my sort of early 50s at the time and i just thought i want to do something different i believe in this opportunity and i, I you know we set 10 back 10x banking up with the purpose of making banking 10 times better better for the banks better for their customers better for society because we believe if you have a more efficient banking system you'll have you know faster growing economies and better societies as a result of it so that was really the purpose right from the start and then of course when you have an idea like that i remember thinking about us going to paris for some reason it's on the Eurostar, trying to write it down it's like okay that's that's fine all right i get that now how are we going to make banking 10 times better that's the question right and um it was literally that thing where you sit with a piece of paper and you go, okay well how would i do that um, and I remember drawing this very simple diagram, which, because I'm not a technologist, you know, I, I'm a user of technology. It looks like a bucket. And the reason why it looks like a bucket is because I said, it just was the light bulb moment. You know, the, the bank systems are all architected around products, but actually what matters is the customer. So let the customer be the bucket. That was the first idea. And then the second idea was, okay, if I think about products in financial services, they basically all do the same things. You know, you have to make a payment, receive a payment, pay an interest rate, charge an interest rate, charge a fee, credit a fee, all of those things. So rather than just build huge monolithic pieces of technology, let's build a set of services that can be assembled like Lego blocks to deliver the functionality. And that, those were the two sort of core ideas that underpinned making banking 10 times better. And if you look at our, you know, now much more sophisticated architectural diagrams that you can see on our website, it basically has stayed true to that pattern. We've just been able to bring it to life. Is banking 10 times better now with your technology? Or are you, how far we're down getting that there. path we're, are we're, we're really, really getting there. We're really getting there. So, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, I, I spent my career building product. I built a lot of product inside banks. And always took me forever to build a product it took a long time it was very expensive you had to spec it all up front and then you know you put it into a queue and somebody go write the code and then they test it by the time it came back to you somebody had forgotten something and you had to do the whole thing again so i said look i just want a product manager to be able to sit down at a desktop and build a product without any code having to be written and that's what we've done now in the 10x platform. So you can build a new product literally in minutes or hours. And because I remember what it was like in big banks, um, we put a workflow around that. So that product once it's built gets pushed to legal, you know, compliance, finance, whoever has to sign off in it. Once it's signed off, it goes in the queue and it can go into production. Now that is radically different to how banks work today. It's much faster, but it's also much cheaper. And you come back to your earlier point about, well, where's the competitive advantage? That is a competitive advantage because if you can deploy product in hours and days, not weeks and months and sometimes years, you're going to have a competitive advantage. 
How do you measure success? You turned one million, which was your initial capital, into six hundred million. Is that success? I don't think that's success for me, right? I mean, I, you know, valuations are valuations, right? At any given point in time, who, you know, who cares, right? It's the only valuation. As somebody told me, the only valuation that matters is the one exit. Um, I ne- I didn't set up ten x to to be a billionaire, right? That wasn't my motivation. My motivation was to make banking ten times better. And what really excites me now is I can see the the 10x benefit coming to life I, I just gave you one example another example you know we've built a huge connection between the salesforce platform and our platform for crm which basically means that a bank can stand up a new crm functionality in parallel with deploying our technology and that again saves massive amounts of time and money so and I'm very confident in the economics. You know, I know for a fact it's ten times better, ten times cheaper to run on our platform than on the legacy technology. So that is very rewarding for me, and you know, that's my motivation. Is it the number of customers? I, you want market share? Yeah, I mean, look, I I think for me, I never saw this business as having. You know, we don't need to have a thousand banks on the platform, right? But we do. You know, ten, twenty, fifty banks on the platform in the next five years is that that's absolutely doable i mean i have no doubt that we will get there um you know obviously we we want to go cash flow positive we're targeting that for 2025 i think that's a realistic kind of assumption for us um and there's the economics of this business are fascinating because once you build it we've been very disciplined about building the software so that it is common to all of our customers once you start to customize, you're dead because you, then you're running essentially different platforms for each customer. So there's huge leverage there because the more customers you have on it, the better the economics. Yeah, I really feel now that we're demonstrating those 10x benefits. Um, we just started work with another customer in the new year, a big European bank. We're going to have a sort of alpha version of their new bank working by April. I mean, it's phenomenal. It's exactly what I wish I had when I was at Barclays. And that sort of, you know, I allow myself to sort of enjoy that for a moment and then we have to get back to work, right? You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. 
So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You mentioned earlier not you know talking ourselves down in Britain. And the government have talked a lot about regulation in the city, uh, at one point it was billed as a kind of big bang 2.0 they've dialed that back a bit but is the regulatory framework in in the uk and for the city working for you as an entrepreneur in this new space or is there more the government could be doing to help you grow your business i mean that's a that's a huge topic and i am an external member on the pra so i have to be careful about my um comments on on regulation but generally you know i think the regulatory conditions here in the uk are pretty good i you know i don't wake up in the morning thinking about regulation as an impediment to my business. But remember, I'm not a regulated entity. Um, my clients are regulated, so I, I have less to worry about in that regard. But I do think there are some things that we can encourage uh, in this country where we could get a huge sort of turbocharge to these sorts of activities. And you know, one of the things that I feel is a big opportunity, which is often not seen as such, is this notion of flexible working particularly in technology businesses, because frankly, you know, I can hire somebody anywhere in the UK now. And I have, you know, I've got people all over the place working for me. And why don't we incent businesses to hire people in the areas where, you know, they're less advantaged, where there's more deprivation in the coastal towns, the sort of areas we want to level up, you know, instead of trying to cause huge businesses to relocate and having to pay, you know, hundreds of millions of incentives and tax subsidies to businesses to go, why don't we just hire the people? The other thing we can do, of course, is we can target training into those areas. I mean, many of my engineers are self-taught. You know, you can become a software engineer in nine or 12 months. Now, you'll, you'll be a basic level software engineer, but then we can upskill people. So I find that to be a huge opportunity. I also think there's other opportunities around, you know, energy, um, energy saving activities in domestic residences where, you know, we know our homes are amongst the poorly insulated in Europe. So let's go fix that. How do we fix that? Well, obviously, we need a supply chain to make the stuff to put in the houses. We need to create people who can install the stuff. But the most important thing about it is we've got to find a way to finance it. And the thing that's difficult about that is, you know, you own a house for three or four or five years, but it's going to cost 10 years to pay back on that. So understandably, people don't make that investment. But why couldn't we find a way to fund that, securitize it, and get the cash flows covered by some sort of addition to, say, council tax? And I think those sort of creative ideas are out there. And they're big, they're big game-changing type things that could really turbocharge our economy in the next 5, 10, 15 years. Do you have the right skill sets or can you find enough technologists or programmers in the UK or do you need golden visas? I mean, you're always going to need, you know, to, to bring people in for certain activities. But, you know, you can. there's a lot of talent here. Um, I think we can create more of it. You know, one of the things that we've been uh, doing in 10X is, is trying to encourage young women to get into software engineering and they're they're brilliant at it you know but it, it's not something that naturally occurs to them so there are huge opportunities not only to expand the talent base here but to also bring talent in from overseas and you know i, I also spend a lot of time thinking about the whole question of productivity which is another hot topic right right it's been the big problem that's bedeviled the british economy right and no one seems to know how to 
how to boost it, right? Like, what's the it is 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 your company part of the answer or the sort of work that you're doing to to make Britain's companies more productive? I mean, my company is a is a classic example of um, one of the questions that I ask to my team all the time is, well, where's the productivity? Right, show me where the productivity gain is. And if you think about productivity, it really comes down to three things, right? The first is, particularly in service businesses, so our, our economy is 85% services in the UK, right? So if you think about somebody performing a service, how do they come, become more productive? Well, the first thing is they, they become more skillful at it. And that could be a combination of experience and training, right? And everybody goes on about training, so yeah, I get that. The second thing is, they think about how do I improve the way that I do this work? Now, this is something we've seen in manufacturing for decades, right? After the Second World War, we had Deming, we had the quality of free movement, you know, the whole Japanese quality revolution in manufacturing. Nobody thinks about that for services, right? So, yeah, I don't know what the elapsed time and resources to create this podcast, but is there a way that we could do it smarter, right? So it, we, we can't. It's, really, <laughs> no, it's, it's already really short. <laughs> Anthony <laughs> yeah. putting extra pressure on our staff. Well, uh, what about AI? Is that part of the answer? <laughs> my, my children spend the weekend playing with chat GPT. And one of the, you know, that thing will write you a Python yeah. script for something. So you, you mentioned yeah, about Well, people. that's the third thing I was going to come to, which is right. automation, right? So how can you automate work? Now, I, I'm old enough to remember when I began my career in banking, when you wrote letters, you would dictate it into a machine and then it would go to a typing pool and somebody would, you know, bash it out on a typewriter. Now nobody does D Dave that. still does that. Yeah, <laughs> I still do that. It's cool. Yeah, but you write your own stuff, right? <laughs> I, you don't dictate it for somebody. So, right. so, you know, that... So if we want to get more productive, then we have to think about pushing on all three levers. And pushing on all three levers is a combination, of course, what government can do, but what business can do, and it's in business's interest. So I think that's a... Yeah, that's another kind of very important vector for us. And you've mentioned, yeah, a lot of a lot of code now is written in a semi-automated, and in some cases, automated way. But you've, Anthony, for as as long as I remember, maybe like almost a decade, have been talking about automation also taking over banking. We're seeing job losses now. Is this a, a reckoning? Is this because of automation? Yeah, I, I think um, we're seeing both sort of structural and cyclical things going on here. So one of the cyclical things, of course, is that we. For various reasons, um, we saw a sort of big uptake in trading activity after COVID and so, or during COVID actually, and, and continuing various sort of world events that created instability in markets. So that's part of it. Um, but structurally, you know, you look at retail banking now. Um, 10 years ago, there was a branch or branches on every high street corner, right? And now there are many, many fewer. And if you go into them, they're empty. Um, so, yeah, that's another example of how automation is changing the structure of work inside um, the financial services industry. And if you want parallels, you don't have to look at the industry itself. You just have to look at other industries. You know, there used to be a blockbuster video store in every town. There isn't any more because we just stream it. But what does that mean for banks? So does Revolut really kind of rival some of the bigger banks? Um, it's it's a point in time. It's a sort of single point service, really. You know, it's about multi currency, low value payments. Now, you can say, you can extend that into other areas of financial services. I mean, I think banks, for all sorts of reasons, have an element of protection to them that other industries don't. Not least regulation, right? Because it is highly regulated, highly capital intensive. But I think the danger for the banks is either they end up in a world where they're 
sort of very gradually but constantly losing share and therefore their economics are deteriorating and we've seen a lot of that post the financial crisis of 2008. Interest rates going up is helpful to banks but it's really I think mostly a short-term phenomenon. Um, and the other thing that happens is that you get you know alternate players coming in and beginning to take away businesses at the edge of the franchises of the banks. Um, you know one of the things I find quite fascinating is the notion of of an apple pay or google pay i mean being able to tap your phone at the tube gate yeah that's that's sort of helpful i mean it's it's not 10x but it's sort of helpful what do you mean it's life-changing it's you know I, <laughs> life-changing for me it's a small things <laughs> yeah it's yeah and, and you know everybody feels differently about these things for me i just take my credit card out of my wallet but maybe it's just because i'm an old credit card guy um but you know those things are, are maybe on your watch people will do it on your watch but you know that's that was driven by the big tech companies that wasn't anything to do with the industry right and like everything yeah the industry was talking about wearables um for probably at least five years before apple pay or google pay came along but they just didn't do anything about it what cast your mind forward you know all of my minds forward five years what does the banking industry in britain look like is it dominated more by companies like yours or do the legacy you know your former alma mater barclays does that reinvent itself sufficiently to keep its dominance i think it's going to be some and summer right? i think interestingly like everybody you know i was doing my shopping on amazon yesterday and um you get to the point the checkout and they say well you know you can finance it at the point of sale through a service provided by Barclays, right? And so there's going right, so to be catching up a little bit. Well, there's going to be partnerships. There's going to be some that will move faster than others. And for my business, I'm in the business of helping the banks who want to go on the journey of transformation, deliver 10x better services to their customers, and ultimately end up being more competitive than their rivals. Um, my view is not every bank will want to go on that journey. I don't need every bank to. Anthony, how do you keep on top of trends? What's really helped you along the way? I think the biggest single thing that I would always say is be curious, right? I mean, you guys are journalists, right? So you're constantly curious. But the trouble with people like me is you get to a certain point in your career and sort of all your experiences are behind you. Um, and in many ways, people people value that because they, they pay for that. You know, they want the experience of somebody who spent 30 odd years in the banking industry. But you can't sit there and just think, you know, well, I, now I know everything. You've got to be constantly curious. I remember I was in, in San Francisco in 2015, and the first um, smart speakers were coming out, and they were in a in a uh, Amazon sort of storefront in San Francisco. And I looked and I thought, why would anybody want that in their house? And, and I don't have it in my house, trust me, because I'm paranoid about stuff like that. But, you know, look at, look at what's happened there. And the other thing that I would always say to people who ask, me about this topic is don't just look at the sort of forward facing things that you can see right look at what's really going on behind the scenes now my favorite example on this is um what happened during the pandemic right everybody was working from home a lot of people working from home and we all talked about zoom or teams or whatever but actually it's nothing to do with zooms and teams that's just the front end the reason we were able to do that was because we all had broadband in our houses, right? And we had broadband in our houses because we put them in because we want to do, you know, watch TV or game or whatever it is. And of course, that stuff got used in the evening, but not in the day. So what was transformational about that experience 
that allows everybody to work from home now, it's broadband. Zoom is just a front-end tool to that. So I, I always encourage people to try and sort of unpick and really try and figure out what's going on. And, and the other thing that's been fascinating for me in doing this journey at 10X is cloud, right? Cloud computing. People think sometimes of cloud as it's simply a sort of hardware solution. You know, I was on a mainframe, now I go to the cloud. But actually what the big tech companies did was because they were basically you know, in the cloud from day one, they created a whole bunch of tools that are unique to the cloud. So the power of those tools can be harnessed for industries like financial services. So I always encourage people to be curious, be curious, be curious, ask questions, go and find out. You, you don't have to know how to write code, but you do need to know how to ask questions. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, it's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, if you like our show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review and subscribe. This episode was hosted by me, David Merritt. And me, Francine Lacqua. It was produced by Summer Sardi. Additional editing by Blake Maples. And special thanks to Anthony Jenkins. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.